The Animal Welfare Junction is part of the Keep It Humane podcast network. Visit keepithumane.com forward slash podcast network to find us and our amazing animal welfare podcast partners. Welcome to the Animal Welfare Junction. This is your host, Dr. G, and our music is written and produced by Mike Sullivan. Today, repeat guest, Dan Edinger from the Animal Control Report. Welcome back, Dan. Well, well thanks for having me and, you know, being part of that podcast network, the, uh, what do we call it? The Keep It Humane Podcast Network? Keep It Humane Podcast <laughs> Network, I believe so. <laughs> <laughs> it's fun to be a part of, part of the network, to have my, you know, my homies and homettes, if you will. I don't know if that's a thing, but it is now. It is now. <laughs> it is now. Thanks for having. Seriously, thanks for having for having me, and uh, I'm excited to to chat about some of the stuff that we got going on. Yeah, absolutely. Because you know, I've been doing a lot of cases recently, or not cases, podcasts recently on animal welfare issues that are really super important. Right? We were talking about One Health and the importance of taking care of animals to decrease the intake of shelters and the issues with no kill and everything else. But I've been doing so many of those cases that I have not had a chance to dive into a forensic case, which is really like one of my biggest passions. So I know that you have a huge case that you worked on and I'm super excited to talk to you about it. All right. Well, I'm excited <laughs> to talk about it, dude. Uh, I'm a little, you know, I'll tell you what I, little side note sometimes we get distracted in life and i got injured a little while back i actually got hit by a dog you can check out that uh that whole <laughs> conversation on on our podcast the animal control report i hope it was a big dog well i'm not going to give it away i'm going to lead people to our podcast if they want to know uh what happened but i've been kind of out of it dr g like i i don't sleep anymore i'm you know doing prehab getting preparation for having surgery it's a it's crazy like i've never experienced anything like this in my life so i apologize in advance to the listeners if i uh may seem a little bit out of it it's all good we love you anyway no that's great <laughs> so yeah so you want to start talking we're going to be talking about a case from denver correct with yeah. marlene elizabeth puzak so do you want to give people the rundown of what that was about yeah. And so what I'm going to do, I think probably the proper way to go about this is just to read the actual affidavit that I wrote in order to obtain a search warrant for the property. We we got a call in 2017, and, and I'll kind of go through all this as I read it, about a multiple amount of dogs on the property. And when we went out there, me and my partner, Sal, Mr. 559 himself, uh, he and I had some, there were some concerns. Uh, Sal, though he was a newer officer with our department, he had some experience, quite a bit of experience in animal welfare. And so uh, it was helpful to have him on that, that call as well. And we, we definitely put our heads together and, and got this affidavit. So I, if, if you're good with it, I'll just start with the affidavit that was written and uh, we can break that down and then go through any, like kind of the process of once we started removing dogs and such. So sounds great. And uh, for anybody that's listening that doesn't know what an affidavit is, can you explain that to them? 
Yeah. So I think the best way to say it is like a legal document or a probable cause statement. It's a report written that will basically cover all the facts of the case that you're working on. And so it's the grounds or the probable cause you are trying to articulate to the judge. So when I submit an affidavit to the judge, I submit that along with a search warrant telling the judge this is what we're looking to seize. And then they either approve it or deny it based on the, the affidavit, based on the facts that support why you're asking for the warrant. Fantastic. Well, let's hear it. Let's see what you got. All right, here we go. Hoodies up for those that are, well, I guess this isn't on TV, so they can't see me, but I'm now ready to go. So, oh, the way that I write, uh, which to me is really important, is I, I write in a chronological timeline because I really want to paint the picture from start to finish versus jumping around, start, like, because some will start with where their involvement was in the beginning, and then they'll go backwards. I like to start from the, um, the the moment where I feel that contact was made and is important to all the way to where we pretty much end. So this is going to start on April 19th, 2014. Denver Animal Protection received a complaint for a welfare check at South Irving Street, Denver, Colorado, for 18 French bulldog type dogs inside the home. Denver Animal Protection Officer Jay LaPointe met with Miss Marlene Puzak but was unable to enter the home due to do a welfare check. Miss Puzak claimed ownership of four French bulldogs and stated she was watching a fifth dog for a friend. The fifth dog was a dachshund type dog. Officer LaPointe issued administrative citation 21436 for four counts of rabies vaccination required and Denver city license required. As of 7-6-2017, that administrative citation was in collections, meaning that it wasn't paid or complied with. On July 29th, 2015, Denver Animal Protection received another complaint for 18 dogs living on the property in terrible conditions, according to the reporting party. Denver Animal Protection Officer Katie Kirk and Officer Jay LaPointe noted a strong smell of feces coming from the property. A door hanger was posted for contact. Ms. Puzak called and spoke with Officer LaPointe. Ms. Puzak stated that she was a foster home for my fairy dog mother rescue, and there were only 10 dogs on the property at the time. Ms. Puzak would not allow officers to do a welfare check on the home, and the case was closed at that time. On July 3, 2017, Denver Animal Protection received a complaint for 15 dogs living at 2125 South Irving Street for a welfare check. Officer Daniel Ettinger and Officer Salvador Aguirre arrived at the home on July 6, 2017, at approximately 2.21 p.m. Upon arrival, both officers could smell feces and urine from approximately eight feet from the front door. Officer Ettinger opened the front screen door and noticed a stronger odor of feces and urine. He also saw what appeared to be dried smear feces on the front steps going into the home. There are approximately six pairs of women's shoes on the front porch with what appeared to be feces on them. Officer Daniel Ettinger could hear what appeared to be a television or radio inside the home. He knocked on the door and heard multiple dogs barking inside. He was unable to tell how many dogs were inside the home, but it appeared there were dogs barking from multiple rooms. All of the windows in the front of the home had cardboard-type material covering 
any view inside of the home. Officer Ettinger spoke with Miss Nikki Gwynn, who owns My Fairy Dog Mother Rescue. Miss Gwynn stated that she had not worked with Miss Puzak for approximately two years. She claimed that Miss Puzak also worked with three other dog rescues in the area, but was not sure of the names of those rescues. On July 7th, 2017, I, Officer Daniel Ettinger, spoke to the reporting party, Miss Angela Angeline Leto, who stated she is friends with the dog owner, Miss Puzak. She stated that she meets Miss Puzak often at the dog park, but Miss Puzak will not let Miss Leto or anyone in the house. Miss Leto stated that she and Miss Puzak bought two French bulldog puppies and litter mates at the same time. Ms. Leto stated that she met with Ms. Puzak at a dog park in Inglewood on July 2nd, 2017, where Ms. Puzak had the French bulldog puppy and a tan, intact male French bulldog. Ms. Leto stated that the puppy had red feet and they were swollen, and she also stated the puppy's testicles were bright red and he smelled of urine and feces. She stated that her puppy from the same litter did not have any of those issues. She stated the tan French bulldog appeared to be underweight. Ms. Leto stated that she met with Ms. Puzak approximately two weeks ago at the Chatfield Reservoir Dog Park. According to Ms. Leto, Ms. Puzak had nine, a nine-year-old female French bulldog, brown brindle in color, and a 10-month-old intact male white French bulldog. Ms. Leto stated both, both dogs had urine stains on them and were missing fur on their legs. Ms. Leto mentioned every time she met with Ms. Puzak, she smelled of urine and feces. She stated that the vehicle she drived, drived the vehicle she drove also smelled of urine and feces. Based on the smell emanating and the statements made by Miss Leto, I have reason to believe through my training and experience there are multiple animals living in unsanitary and unhealthy conditions. I have investigated multiple cases with similar evidence and have found animals in need of immediate veterinary treatment due to poor health. So that was the statement submitted to the courts with the request to impound, and I'll tell you what we put there. Items to be seized were any and all animals that appeared to be sick, injured, living in unsanitary conditions, or in otherwise poor health, or any dead or unborn animals, any photographs taken during the execution of the search of the property. And then we searched the whole, the whole house. That's one of the things that is really important because I've been talking to ACOs and main officers recently about what needs to be and what doesn't need to be on a search warrant, right? So I've seen people that do not include enough things in a search warrant, and then that can have the the problem of things being eliminated from being able to be evidence. So can you talk about, you know, what should be and shouldn't be included and why? So, I mean, it starts with when we're doing an investigation for animals, you want to have dead and unborn for a multitude of reasons right if you just put any living animal right then it limits your scope to any animals that that is alive so if you find dead animals on the property you may not be able to seize them based on how your search warrant was written and if you did that could jeopardize your case that evidence that was seized could be dismissed and the whole case could potentially even be dismissed so i like to add dead and then unborn because if you're impounding a, an animal that is pregnant and they have a litter in your in your care, right? You you didn't have the the right to seize that animal, so you want to make sure that you add that as well. And then the the aspect now, some people listening may say like, well, you don't really need to put photographs or videos taken while on scene or while you're executing the warrant. That was 
that information was told to me by our defense attorney, excuse me, our district attorney. The district attorney said that it was important to add that just so there's no complications with any of the photos that you take while you're on scene or any videos that you take while you're on scene. Though you may wear a body camera, those type of things, it's just important to have that extra element in there. Yeah, and one of the things that I have seen as well, I'm currently taking animal law classes at Lewis and Clark, and we're discussing about the things that kind of need to be and not to be and and the things that defense attorneys can go after. And it's things as simple as blood draws, right? So things as simple as being able to take items from the from the environment that if you do not include those kind of things on your warrant, then they can say, well, this animal, yeah, you took you have a warrant for this animal, but you don't have a warrant to examine said animal. So then you cannot really do anything about it because they're considered property and anything inside of that animal is considered the property of the client. And I know there was a case out of Oregon, and I wish I had had that available, where there was a blood draw done on a dog, and it was mm -hmm. argued that it yes. was it, it was done illegally, and then I think it was taken to Supreme Court, and maybe it was... Mm -hmm. It was overturned. It was overturned, right? Yeah. Yes. So, um, But it's important. Like, here's the thing that I say with warrants and affidavits and such. Like, you can't really... Include, you can't over include things just put it in there like mm -hmm. the the worst case is that you're just not going to use that information um that you that you ask asked and so okay and then some of the areas to be searched you have to put above and below ground right because if there's clandestine graves um you have to make sure that you have the ability to to dig those up and and then exhume the bodies right uh, that's really important and then areas inside the home where really if you're looking for the animal itself, like anywhere that a small dog can be housed, which is literally pretty much anywhere, cabinets, cupboards, right? I mean, that's reasonable that some hoarder might put a dead body in there or something in that nature. And in fact, we had dead bodies in that house. And then the other part of, of it too is if you're if you're looking for records to establish ownership, then you might expand that area to be searched to filing cabinets or even documents on computers to verify ownership and such. So you kind of just have to think large scale in that aspect. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that case uh, where the blood evidence was trying to be excluded and and it was excluded from the regular trial and then it had to go to a higher court, but it was because they were saying about how, you know, yeah, you can have a warrant for somebody's purse, but it doesn't mean that you can open the purse. So they were thinking about the animal's uh, property. So it's like, well, you have a warrant for the animal, but you don't have an, a warrant for what's inside of the animal. But realistically, the way that they that they want, as far as I understand, is that they they prove that the blood tests on the animal were done to provide medical care for the dog. So they were not doing it just to search. They were doing it as part of normal veterinary routine care. To, and then... By doing so, they found out that yes, in fact, this animal was being neglected and was be you know was suffering from mal malnutrition. So, yeah. just word to anybody that's listening that could potentially be in animal control and humane officers, you know, you just got to be really, really inclusive in everything that you put in on a warrant to make sure that you're covering your butt in everything that you are potentially going to take from the scene. And then, so if you don't you, have, a, uh, yeah. If you don't have it included and there's something that pops up while you're on scene, you can always write an addendum and re basically re uh, 
get the warrant reissued with the new new information. So that's important. Yeah, it's just, you know, we're there to protect all the evidence and make sure that we have everything that we need to provide a strong case. So it's it starts with with everything that's in writing, all the permissions that we have to go into into a situation. So you write the warrant and you take it to the court. So what did the judge, how did it proceed from there? Yeah, so it's, or you know, when if you've never written a warrant or been in that situation, I think there's a stigma because of like movies or television shows, like the warrant just makes you seem like you have all this power where sure, like you get to violate somebody's fourth amendment legally and go into their property, but it's a big deal. Like there's a level of, you know, meeting with the, the, our city attorney or the district attorney, whoever it may be discussing the facts of the case, making sure that what we put in the affidavit is accurate and we have the the experience and training that go along with, with the statements that we make. And then once the city attorney approves it or your district attorney, then it's off to the judge. And we, you know, we talk to the judge. We we you basically give the judge your affidavit and then you're just quiet while the judge reads it. And then the judge typically either asks one or two follow-up questions and then just basically says, raise your raise your right hand. And then you do you swear under oath that what you're saying is firm and true, or, you know, et cetera. And then once you get the warrant, you coordinate with the police department and say, hey, we're going to go execute this warrant. Now, you may have to schedule a time where the police department's available. In this case, I can't recall. We might have just went. And then we called PD. We're like, hey, we're going to execute this warrant. We get to the property. Knock on the door. There's no answer. And... At the time, instead of like busting down the door, we thought it was more appropriate to just call the owner and say, hey, uh, we're at your property. We have a search warrant. Uh, are you able to come home and let us in so we don't ruin your property? And uh, she did agree to meet us. It probably took her 20 minutes or so. And that's when it just went bonkers. When when you get a warrant, do you have a time frame that you have to execute said warrant? There's a 10-day period from when you obtain the warrant to when it has to be issued. And so you have that 10-day period from the moment it's signed uh, to execute. So you get PD and you show up So and she she meets you. So what happened then? So she opens the door and uh, I have uh, I actually showed this video in a class that I do for hoarding. I still have some of the video of it. And greeted by about six or seven French bulldog types in the, in the living room, just barking, you know, there's a overwhelming smell of what is feces, urine, and just the initial thing is to go in, document the scene as, as basically as natural as it was before we entered. So video and photograph upon entry is essential. So, go in and start our video rolling as we're taking photos and just basically do a walkthrough and try to get a count uh, so we have a better idea of what we're dealing with. And so the main room, the living room, had loose dogs and then a couple dogs in kennels. Off of the main room to the south of the house, like if you're if we're doing direction-wise, the south side of the house had like a, a laundry room with kennels on a table double stacked so there were 
probably eight kennels in that room with, I would say, 10 to 12 dogs because there were multiple dogs in some of the kennels. They were wire kennels. And then two, uh, two uh, like chest freezers in that room as well, which obviously I'm bringing it up for a reason, but we'll come back to that. Leaving that room, walking to the north side of the property, uh, there was uh, a room, a kitchen to the a kitchen to the west, and then like a kind of like a mud room uh, also to the west. And so there were a few kennels in that mud room off of the kitchen. And not to mention this, the floors are pretty much covered in feces, and the dogs have diarrhea throughout all of their kennels. It's pretty egregious as far as all that goes. So walk back towards the living room, and then there's a bathroom on the north side of the property. And then from there, there's a bedroom and then another, there's two bedrooms. One bedroom had multiple kennels in there, oh, probably over 10 or 15, maybe even closer to 20 dogs in that room. And then there was one other bedroom that appeared to be the primary and that had loose dogs in there. There were probably four loose or so uh, in that room as well. And so we, we we gather our thoughts, we go back outside, uh, we coordinate with our other officers that were on duty that day, and, and then we started the impoundment process uh, after our first initial walkthrough. So a little bit over 30 dogs or so that you guys funneled together, does that sound about right? So the live dogs, there were 37 total, and uh, I believe there were 37 and then there were 12 deceased dogs uh, in the freezers inside the property. One of the things that I try to tell when I'm when I'm talking about how to proceed into crime scenes is about the importance of planning and staging. Right. So we go in and, as you said, you know, you do a walkthrough and you check everything out and you cannot take animals, even if you think that they're in, in danger, or they're in herd or whatever. We have to think about the fact that they are evidence. So you have to go out and then figure out from there where you're going to go. So so you go out, you talk about it. How did it proceed from that point? Well, I, and I think as you say, like as you know, earlier in my career, I think I'm fueled by like excitement and fueled by anxiety and just wanting to get those animals out of there. And, and so we didn't go about it the right way, though we were pretty successful with what we did. I think the better approach would have been once we got the search warrant to reconvene with leadership, to have a discussion, basically brief ourselves on the case and come up with a coordinated game plan. And we did not do that. Uh, that was a, an oversight on my behalf. And, you know, I, I learned from it in some aspects. And I think that like, as we coordinate future activities, it was, it was a, you know, a good, a good planning or a good opportunity to plan around around this. So basically we called the other officer that was on duty. So there were three of us total. Um, and then one uh, person covering dispatch for the night that was also a, an officer helping us with some of the clerical and administrative work. But again, like we talked about earlier, there were 10 days to really execute this and she had no idea it was coming. And so I, I think hindsight being 2020, right. I would have loved to have gone about it differently just because it would have made our process smoother um it was pretty easy as a process we we were able to uh basically start with the loose dogs 
and just load those on the trucks, right? Uh, we were able to get Marlene to actually identify each dog, which was really impressive on a hoarding case that she knew each animal's names. There were maybe one, two or, or so that she kind of struggled with at first. And then she was like, no, that one is uh, whatever, whatever the name was. So that was pretty impressive by her. And so we started with the loose ones, uh, you know, got a count for those and then started with the ones we would just go room by room were the ones that were in kennels and just bring those out and try to document each, each one. And we, you know, we would document. So once we started to clear rooms and, and finally cleared the house, we went back in and then documented the house post post impoundment to just show kind of the aftermath. And you have to think too, I talked about there being feces everywhere. The dogs tested positive for Giardia, right? So now you have a zoonotic that we could be, uh, we didn't know at the time that it was Giardia, but we found out later and thankfully none of us got it. And was she pretty cooperative during the whole thing or was she, um, you know, resentful or aggressive about the fact that you were there for the dogs? You know, she was not aggressive. She was more just in a state of like shock uh, more in a state of like she can't believe that it was happening there was a moment where we were running dogs back to the shelter and thankfully it was only like a 15 minute drive um so as we were transferring animals back the cop that there was only one police officer assigned to it and he was sitting there with her you know holding the scene and there was a moment where she wanted to go use the restroom and he asked he called me like hey can she go use the restroom and i was like she can i was like just i'd be mindful of her mental state like if you think that she's a threat to herself you know the that might not be the best idea like she might have something in her bathroom that she could take or she could do to herself like if you know the police department was really close so i i offered that as an option like hey you know if she really does have to go maybe offer her that instead of um putting her in a room by herself because if you think about it like her whole life is just crashing down right like everything that was her normal and her reality um just came to a halt and that's tough like we we definitely we sometimes lose sight that we have that much impact on people um good and bad and in that situation for her i mean obviously it was good for the animals but it was probably bad for her normalcy, right? Now, thankfully, I think she got some of the help that was required, and we can get into some of that later, but um, it can be difficult for people. Yeah, one of my big interests in forensic psychology is hoarding because I think that, you know, there's there are different types of hoarders, and there are people that kind of fall into hoarding because they can't help themselves, and there are people that fall into hoarding for the wrong reasons, like, like puppy millers and that kind of stuff. But we have to go into the situations for the animals, but we have to also be a little open-minded about the human side of it, because not all of these hoarders are criminals um, per se. Like, I mean, they're committing a crime, they're committing animal cruelty and neglect, but they're, you know, some of them need help, need mental health. And yeah, I want to, I want to get into that once we get through all of this stuff, because I think that's really, really important to this case. But you had mentioned something about some freezers. So what did you find in the freezers? Yeah, and be, before I lose sight of it, uh, we'll talk of like you mentioned, there are, there are three types of hoarders. Um, you have your exploiter, your rescuer, and your overwhelmed caregiver as we break them down. 
Um, but you can be more than one, and I think she was more than one, and so we'll get into that here in a bit. Uh, in the freezers, there were 12 deceased dogs uh, packaged in plastic bags, and uh, she, at first, when I asked her what was in the freezers before even opening them, uh, she claimed that she didn't know, or no, that's not true. I opened the freezer, and I saw the dogs, and I went out there and asked her how many are in there and uh, I think she said like eight at first and there ended up being 12. So that was the moment for me that it kind of clicked that this situation, like granted the situation was bad from the get go, but once the, once the, the deceased dogs were discovered, that was really like that whoa moment. And were they, were they puppies? Were they adults? Is, was that a combination of, of it, ages? Uh, when we, when we, I remember when we opened them up and documented them at the shelter, they all looked to be adult, adult type dogs. So they may have caught, you know, died of natural causes. How hard is it uh, to do a necropsy on a frozen dog? One of the problems with, with having a frozen dog is the fact that you cannot tell time of death, right? Because you are stopping all of the changes that happen once time of death occurs. But Freezing animals actually helps preserve the cost of death. So if she, if they died and she froze them immediately, that actually can help the pathologist evaluate the likely causes of death for those animals, as opposed to if they had been buried, if they had been allowed to go through a whole decomposition stage. Got it. Okay. Good info. So what happened uh, after that point? Like, so you have her... Did she was she taken into custody at that time or how did that process work out? She was. I'm pretty sure they took her in to do a mental health hold. Uh, so police officers can can make that determination. And she was she was taken into custody and uh, charges were later filed for the hoarding. It wasn't filed immediately. Uh, it was filed later on by a police detective. Uh, that's just how the Denver city operates. And so any, any type of felony or misdemeanor had to be written um, by a sworn police officer in Denver. Did anybody evaluate the dead dogs and figure out what they died of? We did. We sent, I don't think we sent all 12. I don't think we sent all 12 for necropsies, uh, but we did send a few uh, to the state laboratory. Um, Colorado state actually has a necropsy lab. We sent them there. And I can't recall the cause of death, but it may have been just, you know, due to age. For what were the conditions of the dogs that were alive as far as, you know, their overall health? You know, outside of their coats being extremely unkempt, they were actually in pretty good shape. Like body condition score was pretty good. I don't recall having a dog that was anything lower than probably a four. I mean, there may have been a three. Um, nothing sticks out to me that there was uh, in the case though. I think they were all outside of the Giardia and outside of their, their coats in that condition, they were okay. I think they did find some things when they did some exploratory surgery, but nothing that was like pretty apparent to us. So what was she ultimately charged with? So she was charged initially with felony animal cruelty due to the dead dogs being found in the freezer. And then the case was reduced down to some misdemeanor animal cruelty. And that would be just for the, the, the life dogs that were living in filth. Yeah. And I think like ultimately too, is like showing some grace 
or mercy in these situations? Like, do we really need to charge her for 35 counts or 37 counts, whatever it may be, right? Like the idea, you kind of talked about it, understanding the psyche of animal hoarders. Like we want to make sure that we're getting the right type of justice. So if this goes to goes to a jury trial and the jury sees that, okay, there were 35 dogs, but we only charged six counts of misdemeanor cruelty and then our, you know, like that looks reasonable and we can explain why we only charge six counts uh, in that case. Right. So like, we're not overdoing it uh, though, though. I would argue that 35 counts would have been appropriate uh, because all those dogs were being uh, neg neglected. People get really worked up because these are emotional cases, right? There are animals that are suffering and people start getting like, you know, eye for an eye and let's burn them and let's starve them and let's do to them what they did to these dogs. And a lot of people don't realize that this is a mental health disease, like true hoarding is actually in the DSM manual for mental health disorders. Uh, so we can, I guess, talk a little bit about the, like you brought up already about the different types of hoarders. Do you want to go ahead and, and talk about the different types of hoarders and kind of where uh, Ms. Puzak falls in inside of that? Yeah, I mean, when you look at, we'll start with the exploiter. So typically an exploiter hoarder, I like to say like the easiest way to describe an exploiter would be like maybe a puppy mill, right? Somebody who has an abundance of animals, the living conditions are not great, right? And their whole goal is to really use that animal to, you know, make money from. And in that situation, right, an exploiter may be really difficult to work with in the aspects of, like, of getting them to comply. And and I don't think, it per this is my personally personal professional opinion, I don't think we should be giving any hoarder a break and being like, just clean it up. Because mm -hmm. the reality is they're just going to reoffend. Like, that is... That is science, I guess, or data data supported. Uh, hoarders will reoffend without any intervention, and so you start with your exploiters, right? And then your the overwhelmed caregiver may be like they didn't intend to have all these puppies or cats, right? Maybe they had two cats, two or three cats, or two or three dogs, and never got them fixed, and then they started to to reproduce in the home. And they, they don't want to give them away or just don't have the ability to, to understand that they need to give them away. And they just start accruing due through like through their own inability to spay or neuter. So over a longer period of time, they become overwhelmed with all these animals. And then you have your rescue hoarders that really look for animals in certain ways. Because A, they don't think that anybody else can care for them that the way that they can. And they they don't trust animal shelters or they don't trust other other rescues because they believe that, again, they're the only ones that can provide the care that they need. And so as you look at those three kind of from an overview perspective, it was in my opinion that Marlene was kind of all three in some aspects. If you understand the case, she was an exploiter from the aspects of uh, people entrusted her with these French bulldogs to show at AKC dog show events so they could earn, you know, earn awards, um, placements uh, in order to sell their puppies at a higher cost, right? So when you have that, 
Now I don't have any evidence of that. There, there, we didn't dig that deep, but from what I understood of the case, I knew that she did have some dogs from known breeders. And then you have your rescuer, which I think was her main avenue. I think she truly felt like she was the only one that could care for these French bulldogs. And in fact, she was infatuated with French bulldogs, every single photo. And there were multiple pieces of artwork and photos throughout her house were French bulldogs. So that was really interesting. And, and then she was overwhelmed. She wasn't able to provide the care necessary to one person care for 35 live animals. It's almost impossible. Live dogs with Giardia. So I actually think in some cases you can have someone that is just one, but I really think the main two were overwhelmed and rescuer. And then she had a little element of the exploiter as well. And I have seen cases that, that do cross over. Um, I worked a case in Athens County where the woman was a rescue hoarder. She did not want to give the animals to anybody because she thought that she was the best to care for them, but she was also breeding them and selling them. So she had a little bit of that exploiter hoarder in that she was selling them to make money. However, she also, the, the adults, she did not want to relinquish them because she thought that she was the only one to, to take care of them. So, you know, I think that there's a lot of, of research and study still needed for hoarders because as I mentioned, I mean, they, they will, they will reoffend because currently, I don't know how, you know, exactly how the laws are in other states, but here in Ohio, it's not, it's not very strong. So mental health evaluations are not required. They're up to the judge if they want to do it or not. And I don't think that they're even followed very properly. So you take somebody like that and you give them fees and fines, and maybe you give them 30 days in jail or whatever, which usually gets suspended anyway. And there, there's nothing being done to keep them from doing it again, right? It's, it's a mental health disease. You don't take somebody that has any other kind of mental health disease and you, you know, lock them up for 30 days and then say, okay, you're schizophrenic. We're going to put you in jail for 30 days. And then you're going to come out and you're not going to be schizophrenic anymore. Right. That's not how that works. It's like, we have to, we have to figure out how to, how to work with this. So in, in her case, she was mandated mental health evaluation though. Right. And uh, what, what came about from all of that? Yeah. So in Colorado, upon sentencing, so upon any guilty or plea agreement, for animal cruelty or neglect, uh, the mental health evaluation is is requ it's actually required per state statute. However, though it's required, it doesn't mean that it's actually getting done, right? It, which is interesting. Uh, I actually was an expert witness on a case, and I mentioned that to the defense that they, you know, because of X, Y, and Z, a mental health evaluation was required and. That was, uh, it was, it just was interesting how that all went. I'll just leave that there. But um, with Marlene, what I believe the outcome was, if I can recall correctly, is she took a plea agreement for two years of, I think, probation with mental health treatment and evaluate or evaluation and treatment, and then no animal ownership for that two year period. And then she also was required to allow for, uh, animal, basically what we would call a Fourth Amendment waiver. So she allowed animal control or law enforcement to enter her house during any normal kind of time frame, like not two in the morning, but maybe, you know, four in the afternoon on a Saturday. She wouldn't know, but we would come and do an inspection to ensure that she did not have any animals or she was not violating the court order. 
And that's, I mean, I just think that that is super important, right? Because again, it's kind of, we want to, we already take, took care of the animals that were suffering and then we're trying to prevent issues with future animals. But in the end, also, we're trying to help her because that's where where it all lies. If we don't help her with her condition, with her potential possible mental health condition, then we're not really doing anything, right? Correct. Correct. So um, I have been I have been creeping on her. And from what I have seen, it looks like she has been somewhat staying out of trouble. It doesn't look like she's been having any issues. So it makes me feel hopeful about the fact that mental health evaluations and treatments can be the the answer to recidivism in hoarding cases. So I'll take it one step forward. I actually reached out to Marlene probably three months ago, two months ago. And I said, hey, like first, I, you know, I kind of really took a, I think a compassionate approach. I mean, she was very polite to her responses, but I just said, hey, Marlene, my name is Daniel Ettinger. I was the officer who um, took your dog that day. I don't know how I said it, but, you know, um, but I was wondering if you'd be open or willing to tell your side of the story on our podcast. And we went back and forth with a few, you know, Q&A. And she basically said she'd think about it. And I just I dropped it there. I didn't um, I haven't I haven't heard from her since. And I haven't I'm not going to reach back out. I'm going to. You know, if she's interested, she'll tell us that she's interested. But I think that would be such a, a, a neat case study to hear it from her view viewpoint. And not that we want to make fun of her or exploit her or anything like that. Mm-hmm. I, I just want her to have an opportunity to tell her side of the story um, because I'm sure it's going to be different from from our side of the story and just give her that that platform. So that was that was interesting to do that. And I thought about it for a while before I even messaged her, to be honest. I thought about it, and then I I said, you know, let me see if she's on social media. Uh, and she was, and she responded pretty quickly, and everything was was pretty cool in that regard. But as I mentioned, uh, we left it at that. Yeah, I'm sure that it's. I mean, it's got to be a dark time for her, especially if she has moved on and been able to to get her life together and stuff. It's got to be somewhat difficult to go back to that. But I think it would be great for her to tell her story, especially if she if she is no longer finding that urge to hoard animals, because yeah. so much can be learned from that. You know, again, I'm a, a big, I'm a big proponent of uh, I say feasts and fines in jail if somebody is actually committing animal cruelty, if somebody is animal. However, in these cases of animal hoarding there's so much to be done to help these individuals because I just see case after case after case that three months, six months later, they're back to hoarding and having a case where we can say, you know, this person was in this trouble. This is what happened. This is how it was addressed. And look where she's at. Like she's the 1%. If she is rehabilitated, she's the 1% because from the statistics, it's 99% recidivism. It would be amazing to hear from her, kind of how things worked out. Yeah. Maybe she can be also like a mentor for others who are dealing with that. And she, you know, she can potentially help them. 
Another kind of side thing of this is you mentioned about the, you know, she was training and that kind of stuff. So I know that there were some individuals that came up and said that some of those dogs were not hers, that they actually gave her the dogs for her to board and train and show for them. So what was the, what was the deal with those? Well, before we even get to that, I think it's important to know that like, it was, it was an interesting thing. So we elected to do an adoption event of these dogs in the same city and community where we took them from. And that was an extreme just mistake, a huge mistake. Uh, I'm all for getting animals out of a bad situation. And, and I'm all for uh, trying to get animals from a bad situation into a good situation. But I think there's a level of compassion and, and courtesy to not turn around and push somebody's face into it while you're like basically saying you can't have these animals, but we're going to give them to all these other people and then promote it. I think the the appropriate thing to do there would have been to they're French bulldogs, bro. Like you could have worked with any rescue group throughout the country and they would have taken them. Right. Right. And so I thought that was a little greedy and selfish of us at that time to do that. And it backfired. Uh, it backfired because now once we promoted it, all these alleged owners came out of everywhere saying, well, wait, we only gave her that dog to show. We didn't give her that dog to keep. Right. And so unfortunately for us at that time, we already did some exploratory surgeries and spaying and neutering and people were livid. Yeah. That's what I saw is that some of these people were complaining. There were from what, from the news that I saw that I read, it said that there were four owners uh, suing over about 10 dogs saying that they were spayed and neutered. And then, so those dogs were no longer valuable to them because they were supposed to be shown and bred and, you know, puppies sold. (laughs) And then they said that there were unnecessary and experimental quote unquote procedures, which some of the procedures, as I looked at it, it was Nary's resection for some of these dogs, which it is a known problem with French bulldogs that they can't breathe because their nose are just shut down. <laughs> uh, so yeah. it's not really unnecessary and experimental. That seemed to be a little bit of a reach by the defense attorneys. But just overall, the fact that they were they were complaining about, you know, yeah, these are our dogs. These are our proof of ownership. And we want our dogs back. And then that kind of held these poor dogs in some legal limbo. It did. And, you know, I, I wish I had more information on that case. Once it went to a, a lawsuit against the department that really resided with the director and then some of the executives within the Department of Public Health and some of the attorneys. Uh, so we weren't privy to what was going on at that point. Uh, we just, we you know, pretty much once the case was brought back and we brought the animals in and did all, all of our documentation and case prep, uh, the case was then we were done with it. So. Yeah, just really important, you know, to for for everybody, including shelters and rescues to understand kind of what the laws are and then what what due process is trying to figure out who these animals belong to and everything. Because I saw, you know, from from you guys' standpoint, it looked like everything that was done properly as far as the animals were taken from her house. She surrendered all the animals. So everything up to that point was done correctly. So after that, it was just it was just kind of paperwork 
a paperwork disaster, it looks like, that held these dogs from being able to find their homes. It was. And if there was ever a point where ownership was questioned, like she just, let's say like when we were talking to her and establishing uh, ownership, I mean, like as mentioned, she knew every single name of those dogs. But if she would at one point said like, you know, this one belongs to whoever, Luann Strickland. And that's actually another hoarding case. That's crazy that I brought that up. We can talk about that one day. She had over 400 animals. It's a wild Jeez. case in Colorado. Um, anyway, <laughs> I'm, uh, uh, you can, you <laughs> for can another Google, podcast. <laughs> yeah, you can Google Luann Strickland. That's a, but let's say she did say that they belong to somebody else. We would have paused, right? We would have said like, okay, let's investigate that. No, oh, here's here's what's crazy too. I remember this. So some of those animals had microchips. And when we, when we ran them, none of them were registered. And then after they made these allegations that they were theirs, they went back in and changed the microchip to match the owner or the alleged owner. So it was kind of, kind of sneaky stuff that they were doing. Yeah. I saw that because I thought, you know, they were saying like, oh yeah, it was our microchips. Clearly it's our dogs. And no, we didn't, we didn't register until after the fact because we forgot no like most breeders like that will microchip their dogs as soon as you know they're old enough to get microchipped so mm -hmm. just the fact that they were microchipped doesn't mean that they were their property it just means that they were a dog The one of the mm -hmm. one of the people also said yeah we have genetic testing that can show that that dog is from our litter right but you could have sold the dog. You could have given the dog away. That doesn't really mean that you own these dogs. Right. I like right. Uh, something about possession being nine tenths of the law. These people are saying, uh, you know, this is my dog and I love my dog and I, you know, cared for my dog. But from what I read, a lot of these people said, well, I met her, but I never saw where she was at. Like they did not do their due diligence and making sure where these dogs were going to be kept at. Like they were just yeah. looking at the dogs being trained and shown and then making profit off them and their babies. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, that was a, it was a really interesting case from the aspects of like all the different elements that it met. It was, um, it was a great learning experience, something that I value. And, you know, I, I really think that as we continue to move forward in this profession, that we can share some of these things and learn from it for other other officers and other agencies throughout the country or world. Nothing ever, ever truly goes exactly to plan. Uh, a lot of the cases that I work with, especially with like national organizations and stuff, they're like, this is our plan A. And then this is our plan B, C, D, E, and F, right? Because you just never know what exactly you're going to, you're going to find out. Uh, but as long as we do our best and learn from it, then I think that there's there's something to be gained. Absolutely. Absolutely. I would completely agree with that. Is there anything else about this case that you think that we've missed or that we need to bring up to educate our listeners? I think it's just important to, for me, and to reiterate where I'm at. Hindsight, obviously, being 2020, like, I would not have gone about it as quickly as I did now like as i'm sitting now if i got a case presented that way i would do my due diligence and try to really figure out the best approach um not that we did anything Taking wrong. a veterinarian with you 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, absolutely. Like, not that we did anything wrong on day one. I mean, we were able to really document the scene and get the animals and do all the things. But I think we could have just gone about it in a better way. I mean, we still got the outcome that we desired. And that was the mental health eval and treatment and, you know, the no animal ownership for a period of time and, and certain things. So, I mean, at, at the end, like, the outcome was still beneficial to the animals. And I think beneficial to Miss Puzak, really. But I would have liked to have gone into the case a little differently. It's so important to to plan everything um, thoroughly. And it, from a from a veterinarian standpoint, I get so many cases that I am asked to consult way after the fact. And it's mm -hmm. like, well, if we had done this different, that different, then that would have built a better case. And this case, you know, I I think that it was beneficial the fact that she was cooperative because it could have gone really, really wrong potentially. Um, so, you know, just taking, taking your time, you have 10 days is figuring it out and, and taking your time. Absolutely. And one thing that I forgot to mention, which is, well, it's specific to Colorado and it may be in other States is Colorado has what's called a cost of care statute, a cost of care paperwork. So the statute is part of the animal cruelty, animal neglect law and it actually can extend to dangerous animals as well i believe wait a second that might be on the city level so don't quote me on that on the state level it's a, it's part of the animal cruelty or neglect on the city level ours also went to any animal involved in dangerous dog behavior too but the point of it is this this paperwork that's partly law basically says that you as the pet owner animal owner has 10 days from the impoundment to appeal the impoundment or if you don't appeal the impoundment you have 10 days to pay what's called the cost of care for 30 days so you have to pay that first 30 days within 10 days if you fail to do either so if you fail to do the cost of care paperwork or you fail to do the appeal or pay the the fee uh, the animal then becomes a property of the the city, and I think she sent surrendered all of them though, if I'm not mistaken. So I don't think she even did the paperwork; she just surrendered ownership. Yeah, from what I read, it looks like she surrendered them almost immediately. Yeah, and I and it so. and it makes you wonder what part of that is the overwhelmed caregiver thinking that I finally have some, you know, I it's no longer my problem. It's not, it's no longer yeah. my issue. Right. Whereas yeah. a rescuer hoarder, I've worked with re uh, in cases with rescuer hoarders that they do not give up ownership of those dogs all the way up to the court date. Because again, they think that they're the only ones that take care of those dogs. Whereas yeah. the overwhelmed caregivers are, are like, Hey, you have a place for them to go. Fantastic. Let's, let's get them out of here because I can't take care of this anymore. Totally. Totally. Also, I'm glad the listeners can't see my face because this my knee, man. It's it's so much pain. Um, I'm I'm like rocking back and forth and making weird faces. So I appreciate you being patient with me on this episode. And I probably don't sound like my normal self just because I've been so tired late, lately. But um, I'm glad we could have. I'm glad we could get this this information out there. No, I'm I'm really glad that you had this case to share with us because again, I'm, I'm really into animal hoarding and I think that we need to do so much better for the animals and for the, and for the people. 
So thank you so very much for sharing this. And uh, I mean, before we leave, how about you plug your cast, man? So we are myself and Ashley Bishop. They are the hosts of the Animal Control Report. The Animal Control Report podcast is available everywhere and anywhere you listen to podcasts. Uh, it's also some of the episodes, not all. Uh, we're trying to get more and more up on YouTube. So we're doing video casts as well. Uh, you can go to our website, keepithumane.com. What else do we got going on? The socials, the Animal Control Report on Facebook, Keep It Humane on Facebook and Instagram as well. So that's a good one to follow. And yeah, that's kind of it. Cool. And we're all part of the Keep It Humane Network. So even better. Right? Even better. Cool. Thanks, Dr. G. No problem. Thank you so much for, for being here and for uh, sharing this case. Again, I think that it's a, a really great case, forensic-wise, from, from all different perspectives. So I really appreciate you. And we'll have to talk about that other hoarding case with 400-plus animals at some point. Well, let's before you go, let's just tease it because Lou Ann Strickland was the wife of a Colorado state senator, I believe. He was either a senator or a representative. And she was actually very impactful in a couple things in legislation when it came to animals in Colorado. But the the dark side of her is she had property out probably about 45 minutes to an hour east of Denver. And this place was just it was a nightmare. And if you when you read about it, when you Google it, uh, you'll see they eventually after years of dealing with her, they eventually were able to get a search warrant in conjunction with like the state of Colorado, some of those agencies and start to remove the dogs. So she since passed. Um, they were both kind of uh, elderly um, towards, you know, towards some of the, I guess, larger numbers of animals, but that was a, that was definitely a, a rescuer and overwhelm caregiver for sure. Well, yeah, I definitely want to talk about that in a future episode because that sounds pretty wild. Oh, it's wild. So, so. yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much. Take care. Take care of that knee. And we appreciate you. And for everybody that's listening, thank you for listening and thank you for caring. Keep it humane, man. That's right. <laughs>